welcome back, Calm listeners. This is Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Cal, what's going on in the news? We had all that money being burned last week with physical goods not being able to be shipped. And I just read something this morning. I don't know if it's a hedge fund that lost something like $100 billion, but I think it's important to look at and study and say, what's even going on here? Maybe give us a high level of how this all happened. Yeah, it was quite the roller coaster last week. And what happened was during Friday, which was March 26th, we've seen quite the sell-off in some particular stock names and block trades. So quite a lot of shares have been dumped into the market, being liquidated with no apparent reason or fundamental reason for these stocks to drop. So what has happened is that there is a fund called Archegos Capital, and it's run by a man named Bill Huang. The people who know this guy have heard of him. He's known as a Tiger Cup. There was this big fund quite a while ago run by a fund manager who's very well known in Wall Street. His name is Julian Robertson. And his fund named Tiger Management was very known and one of the most successful funds around. Some of his traders that have eventually moved on to their own funds and create their own thing. And they've been nicknamed Tiger Cubs because they started from there. So they've all pretty well known and pretty reputable in terms of being quite successful. He moved on in the early 2000s, I believe, and he started a company named Tiger Asia Management. And that company was a fund. He even survived the squeeze of 2008, a Volkswagen and the financial crisis. And he's known to be quite the aggressive trader. And what happened is in 2012, he got investigated by the SEC and accused of apparently what seems to be insider trading. I don't know the ins and outs of the story, but long story short, he reached a settlement of paying $44 million in 2012, which is huge. Now, after that, because he's been banned in a way to not manage a fund or take outsiders' money, he started his own company called Archegos Capital, and it's a quote-unquote family fund. So technically, it's his own money. He can do whatever with it. He's like a professional trader, but trades for himself under a company name. And because it's run as a family fund, he doesn't go through quite the same restrictions as hedge funds. So he started the fund, I think, 2013 or thereabouts, and he had $200 million to start. He was able to grow it up until literally under two weeks ago was as big apparently as $10 billion. So from $200 million, he turned it into $10 billion in a matter of seven to eight years. That's quite the success rate. You're talking about 50% annualized return or more. And the thing is, because of the 2012 incident, not many people were willing to touch him with a 10-foot pole because he had a bad reputation of what has happened with the insider trading. But with that kind of money, he did eventually find some people that were able to do business with him. So one thing led to another. And then these prime brokers, which is basically big banks, they help facilitate the trading for him. So what happens is he's trading with these banks, Credit Suisse, Namura, Goldman, Deutsche Bank, and many others. I think there are maybe half a dozen of them. 
And what has happened is they were able to facilitate what they call a total return swap. So let's say you, John, you want to trade and you come to me and you say, Cal, I don't have a trading account. Can you buy me shares of XYZ? And I would go buy the shares on your behalf and I would own the shares using the money you've provided. And after that, any ups or downs that happen to the SOC, it's your loss because it's your fund, it's your money. Now, the only exposure I'd be exposed to as being Cal is even though I own the stock, I would be exposed to credit risk of you defaulting. So in this case, they were able to do that for him, buy these shares on his behalf and give him the contract for difference. So he'd be able to capitalize on any gains on the stocks that he bought and any dividends if they pay any dividends. But if it drops, he has to pay the difference plus any fees that they might incur. They also provided quite the large amount of leverage. The gist of the story is there have been mentions that he was able to get a leverage of five to eight times on these positions. And we're talking on single stock positions. So if you're talking out of a fund that is worth $10 billion, and let's say an average of five-time leverage over all these equities that he's bought, you're talking about $50 billion worth of positions, right? So one thing led to another and there is volatility. He was over leveraged and he had to liquidate. But because there's such a large positions on these single stocks, they perform these block trades and they're so huge that it caused the price to drop enormously on these stocks. And that's when he got margin called. He was forced to sell, but the banks would also bear losses because he only really has 10 billion but he's holding 50 billion, maybe 80 billion worth of equities. So what he has worked hard for, for the past nine years, really wiped it all out in a matter of days. It's a scary story, but I don't think it's something that happens often in the market in terms of funds as big as this, although we do hear them from time to time, but happens to quite a lot of novice traders or people who day trade and they go on these huge positions. It's a similar story, but a much bigger scale. And because it's so big, the criticism on some of these banks, people think that how can these banks give the guy with such a reputation this much leverage on single equities, and now they're forced to liquidate, and some of them are stuck with these shares and not able to sell them. So again, because you're talking such big positions, it could be quite a scary story. I'm a little bit in awe of the magnitude because a billion dollars on its own is such a huge amount of money. And not only does it seem like a waste of money that disappears in a matter of days or weeks with an overleveraged position, but imagine if really good finance people actually set a fund, leverage or not, what if you took $10 billion and said, okay, I'm going to get to 20 and on my 21st billion, I'm going to solve world hunger, or I'm going to build things in society. And I think it's an interesting question because almost like a video game, once you have too much of something, I find it could either get boring or lose its purpose or maybe drive some people crazy. What would drive someone for the nth billion incremental amount of money just for the sake of it for a high score when you can actually make a change and do something? I mean, it's probably a better use of money to blow up rockets trying to go to space than what that guy did. It almost sounds like the perfect storm of the wrong things happening. And I wanted to unpack a couple of things you had mentioned. 
this is my first time hearing about it. I'm sure others have similar questions. Let's say you haven't talked to a guy or gal in a while and you knew them from school, maybe an acquaintance, and they ask you to sign a car lease for them. But don't worry, they're good for the money. They'll pay you. They get the use of the car. You pay the insurance and you're titled on insurance, car, everything. You've got the legal liability, but don't worry, he or she will pay you back. It almost sounds crazy. And number one, am I understanding that right? Is that a good analogy? And number two, these banks must have just been hungry for money. It's the only logical, hungry to the point of greed or just foolish without thinking of the ramifications of that. In a way, that's actually a very good analogy, John. The idea of this is that these banks can profit without having the market risk exposure or the strategic exposure of stocks. The stock can go up, can go down. They won't make money on the movement, but they can make money on the interest rate or the charges that they charge to facilitate these CFDs or contract for difference. It's similar to that. At least that's my understanding. And maybe someone can correct me if I'm wrong. So it's a business model for these banks. Once upon a time, not too long ago, the banks had their own prop desk. They would trade as big hedge funds. And after certain financial events that we know of just over a decade ago, those rules and regulations were set to stop that. Maybe in a way, this is a method for these banks to have access to some of their clients that are very high net worth individuals, and they would buy these shares on their behalf at the price that these individuals or companies would buy them at. And then if it goes up and they decided to sell, they would give them all the profits, but they would get a cut. If it drops, the customer is also responsible for the losses to pay back plus interest to these banks. The challenge is where I find the difficulty with this is first, it's a risk management problem. Perhaps Bill Wang or Tiger Cub should have acted sooner on the matter. Maybe he shouldn't have leveraged as much on these individual stocks. But the other point of view as well is, why are these prime brokers leveraging this much? Why are they giving him this much leverage on these single equities, having these big positions on these stocks and taking that much risk themselves because giving them five or eight times leverage on billions of dollars as a trader, you have to think, what if it goes south? How am I managing my trade correctly? And this goes on any level, whether you're starting and trading with $100 or trading with $10 billion. So that is one of the things that I find challenging. And the second is, how many of these are out there right now? Could it be a domino effect? Could the drop of this cause the drop of other funds? Because these other family funds or firms that own these shares through the prime brokers, would it cause a domino effect? Now they get margin called because these shares have dropped quite a lot and they have to liquidate again and cause a domino effect to other stocks and other firms and so on and so forth. So how bad can it be? At this point in time, it's a bit early to tell. Also, when you facilitate such a thing, you have to really understand what your risk is. And the problem is because he was registered as a family fund, not a hedge fund, he has a lot less scrutiny on him because he's not running people's money. So it's only his own personal wealth. Let's say you own one of these stocks that he owned. If you look at the financials or the companies or the institutions that own these stocks, you would see JP Morgan, Nomura, Credit Suisse. You'd see the banks because they are actually the ones that bought these shares, not Archegos Capital. So you see where the problem lies because he technically owns all of these shares 
through different entities. And now they're all forced to liquidate because he's liquidating. So if you knew that and you knew how much leverage he was in his positions, you perhaps might have taken a different stance at taking a position at these. Maybe you'd still buy these companies, but it might actually alter your perspective on these stocks, not in terms of a fundamental point of view, but what if things go south and I'm left holding the bag and because I'm stuck with my thousand shares or a hundred shares and I'd have to sell them at half the price. These are the questions that come in hand. And he also seemed to donate around $500 million throughout his fund to charity. So it seems that he's done some good and paid it forward in a way. His goal was obviously to make money. The problem is risk management. It's significantly overlooked. The moment that I've decided and realized how important risk management was, I actually managed the small capital that I have, relatively speaking, much more efficiently. Now I'm not getting as much as volatility in my PNL, but it is better to have something a bit more solid when you're managing such a big fund. Yeah, we had almost a year ago, leading into around August, those headlines about Masayoshi-san going long tech with call options. And that was supposedly the reason for all the exuberance in the market or a big driving force and a catalyst for a lot of buying, right? And a lot of stock appreciation. I'm kind of wondering now if single entities do have $100 billion of firepower and can swing the markets, are the markets really that big? Or I guess my comment would be maybe the interconnectedness of the top 10 or 20 funds, these funds are not that independent and these tickers are not that independent. I think liquidity is almost small in a way. It almost reminds me of crypto with the sell-off of MT Gox. And that was just a reminder, a Japanese bank settlement of probably a billion or so dollars of crypto. That is what was known much later as the reason why crypto dipped from 17 down and I'm just casually observing. Anytime I see a huge swing in markets, I wonder why, who's the driving force? We can use Canadian real estate as an example. So 2017, there was exuberance in the market, rates were low. And let's not ask why they were low, but who sets the rates? Bank of Canada, the government decides the overnight lending rate, and then the banks relend to people. Whether it's collusion or competition between them, they're going to all chase for business and this is the role of the banks as I see it. So what happened was the government of Canada said, okay, I'm going to add a stress test. You can't get approved on 3%. You got to get approved on 5%. And they added a stopgap to control asset inflation in homes. And as far as I know, that dropped homes by probably $100,000, $150,000 on an $800,000 home. So it's quite a big chunk, almost 20% in two to three months. Some people were closing deals and backed out, got sued in the courts, and it was kind of a disaster. So short-term speculation is risky by nature. And the scale of what you're borrowing, your base capital does not change risk, especially with leverage. So having a billion dollar capital base is not less risky than $100, as you mentioned, if your leverage is juiced to four or five, 10x. And I'm just taking it all in because I want to see how markets react. I want to learn from it. And I just find it cool because the markets were always opaque to me. The players aren't known. There's been a lot of push for disclosures from government, specifically with GME. And I'm actually just sitting here almost laughing at the amount of names for derivatives I just learn about each day. I didn't know TRS existed. And 
there's just all these exotic instruments. I don't know if these people hired writers to churn out financial contracts and just sell them. And it's almost a wild west to see where one can make a new derivative and try and sell it and convince other people that it's a good way of making money. It almost is a legal way of swindling and grifting where banks prey upon people's capital. And these are supposed to be educated people as well. And it just shows that no industry is free from malpractice or bad decision making at the very least. If someone's essentially genuine and their intentions are good, but they really want access to the markets, it looks like this is what happens. So, I mean, I would actually ask for a list of every leveraged position over a billion dollars or maybe 10 and say, what kind of exposure do we have to big funds? And what is that going to mean for the overall markets? And just like Suez, this is the metaphorical version and pick the Lehman Brothers in 08. There was a huge bailout for the financial markets because of the threat of an economic collapse. Over leverage is not new. I don't think it's the last time we'll see it either. The question comes down to how transparent do we want to be? And is there going to be a lobbying from the side of major funds to say, well, I don't really want to report to you. I'm wondering if it's almost like in game theory where you have a winner and a loser with such large sizes of capital. Maybe people are trying to outsmart each other and we're just wildly speculating now, but I've always heard of big funds pricing something as a buy or sell trying to swing a position. This is probably an opportunity for transparency and regulation and these kinds of things. And you're not going to re-educate a behemoth who has that much capital. You're not going to be the guy or gal who has a voice on Twitter and say, you can't do this. It's just like everyone else shouting at billionaires. I don't think that is an effective way. But my suggestion would be, where can you innovate in this space and level the playing field? So do you hyper-educate retail? Do you hyper-educate that and make easier access for the average person to learn and invest in? It only takes some quick math to say, how many customers do you need with a $1,000 account to compete with a hedge fund and do these kinds of things? And in case people are still wondering, I think there's still lawsuits and discovery process. And a lot of people on Wall Street bets still fighting the GME play. And that ticker went from three five hundred dollars down to 50 and now as far as i remember is around 200 or less and is actually quite steady like i've been through so much tesla volatility over time elon musk is just resilient enough to not really care about what people say on wall street he really is an innovator so is this cohen guy going to innovate as well he's bringing on his chewy board those are fundamental tangible things i always laugh because people always told me tesla's overvalued and Eventually, they think, well, they're not worth a trillion dollars. They're worth $200 billion. But meanwhile, $200 billion was way overvalued when they were originally at $20 billion. And I think people just are bad at assuming the long-term outcome of companies and maybe cannot extrapolate if things go right, what will this business look like? And that is the essence of asymmetrical investing, meaning if you're going to go long on a company, am I going to spend a dollar to maybe make 20 or or $1,000? Well, why not? If that dollar is disposable, I don't need it to live on, then those are the kinds of bets people take. And how angels or venture capitalists do it is not from a leverage perspective. I don't think you can actually leverage private investment that way. It would be a good research topic. But I think what it comes down to is anyone who invests says, I can beat the market. I can 
beat other assets. I can beat boring things like bonds, which means I'm a better picker at private companies. I'm a better picker at upcoming companies. And I don't blame people. I think it's an exciting field and it is opportunity. And if you have some small say in what the next Uber or Tesla is, I find it personally exciting, which is why I follow this space to begin with. And to me, it just adds purpose to my life. And it's a cool thing to learn about. And by definition, by following smart people, I think it makes you smarter and it gives you an idea of what to think about. To me, it gives a sense of direction. And those are the kinds of things I stay in tune with. I'm not the expert on hedge funds or markets and all that. So that's why I wanted to talk about this topic in the first place, because I just find it new and it's kind of interesting at the very least. I guess we'll see what happens. But I wanted to ask, what happens if this guy loses all his money? Is he really on the hook? Where did he even get that money from? This $200 million? Was it his gains from the last endeavor he had? And then he just basically convinced someone to make the trades for him. You must be pretty persuasive. You can tell a bank, well, I'll give you 5%, but I need you to take my 200 million and take on all the risk. And don't worry, I'll pay you back if something goes wrong. You can sue me. I've been sued before. I'll pay out. What was that conversation like? I don't really know how he came up with the 200 million, but I wouldn't think it's going to be that difficult for him. He worked for a very, very successful fund, like I mentioned with Julian Robertson, and he had his own fund for a few years as well before that. So it could have been his own money, plus maybe some family money, probably something like that. The discrepancy with the whole story really isn't much about how he came up with these funds, but it's just about really poor risk management at this point. So how he came up with the money, I actually don't know. The thing is, how will this turn out? is quite the mystery for me because derivatives in general, I find very fascinating. They can be quite complex. It took me years for me to understand them. And now I'm recently in the past few years, I'm starting to get the grasp of them and really learn, but there's so many of them. And I find that they are potentially very good tools. That's why they exist. But how you use them is the question, right? So you can misuse them. It doesn't mean that they're bad. It just means that they haven't been used properly or in the right way or managed right. So at the end of the day, they are a tool that you can use to maximize a return, which is really leverage. That's what derivatives have in terms of an advantage. They are quite the leverage product, but that's where you have to really manage that risk. Imagine you coming in 2013 with $200 million and going to the banks and trying to Find a prime broker who will take care of you. You know, it's just like filing for bankruptcy as an individual, right? You try to go buy a car and no one's willing to give you anything below 20 or 30% interest rate. If that, some banks will say, we won't touch you with a 10-foot pole. You're too high risk. And all you're trying to do is buy a five, $6,000 car. So it's the same idea. But when you're talking $200 million here, even though he has quite the rocky history, he still has the know-how of how to do the ins and outs of this. Eventually, someone's going to bite and they'll say, you know what? There's money in it. He's just trying to grow and we'll just work with him. And 200 million at this rate of return with this many fees is going to be quite lucrative. So you get one, then the other bites in. And then not much later, you have six, seven banks working with you and over leveraging. So again, just to put it shortly, I find this whole situation just poor risk management. Easy to say now, clearly, but there are some questions that need to be raised. And it is fascinating. You're never too big for the market, really, as an individual or a fund. You can fall if you don't manage it 
correctly. The GameStop situation is also very interesting. It's something that can actually materialize to something quite fundamental in terms of the change of the company, but the stock price isn't the reason for that. The stock price is a reaction to that, that there's belief that the company has value, will change. And that's what caused a lot of people jump into the GameStop wagon and bought it based on the fundamentals. But it is very, very fascinating. And my fear, like I mentioned earlier, is that this will have a domino effect. That's my opinion on the matter. How big that will be, I don't know. But $80 billion is a lot of money, no matter how you slice it. I think Nomura is expected to lose $2 billion out of this. Credit Suisse is expected to lose anywhere between 3 to $5 billion. Based on what I found, I think Deutsche Bank is coming out of it clean. They are not losing anything. And Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi, I think they're going to lose $300 million. So you have big, big banks losing quite a lot of money and wiping possibly months or years worth of profits here. Yeah, just as a summary, it is something worth following for sure. I wouldn't be surprised if we see regulation come from this. Regulation or transparency. And back to your comments about the value of derivatives. Is a car valuable if one day out of 10 years it blows up? I would argue that there's some engineering that needs to go behind the hood and redesign it. I think that is my guess as to what will happen in process here. We've talked about process and making mistakes in the last episode. This is just an example of where process and learning can benefit this whole industry. My question, if anyone wants to research, what's the biggest size of fund out there? And are there any in the trillion dollar mark in terms of assets under management that are in the public markets? Just a data point to look into would be cool to know. And how big can funds get? So as assets appreciate and people grow, is there going to be trillion dollar funds that are quite normal and all of a sudden are bigger than countries. Imagine leveraging those and forget country bailouts. That would be even more of a disaster. So very, very interesting. I think it's cool to think about if anyone can recommend any risk management books or anything that they've read that is awesome. Definitely give us a shout. We'd love to hear from you. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Methodical Millions where you can better your future and better yourself. Thanks, everyone.